you're listening to a free episode of Money Talks. To listen every week, you'll need to be a subscriber. To sign up, click the link in the show notes or search online for Economist Podcasts Plus. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Economist. Sam Altman was always fascinated with computers. At the age of eight, he learned to code and take apart a Macintosh computer, paving the way for him to study computer science at Stanford University. There, he developed a mobile app with two classmates. And after two years, he dropped out to work on it full-time. The app, Looped, shared users' locations with their friends. It was part of the first group of eight companies at startup accelerator Y Combinator, which has a knack for creating unicorns. Looped was sold for $43 million in 2012. And after a stint running his own venture fund, Sam was chosen by Y Combinator's founder as his successor. This was 2014, and Sam was 28 years old. The following year, Sam got together with Elon Musk to co-found a non-profit company called OpenAI. Its aim was to develop cutting-edge artificial intelligence while ensuring that the technology wasn't cataclysmic for humanity. We sit there all day and stress about what this means for sort of the continuation of humanity and how we want to design a structure where the world gets input and benefit from what we're doing. Late last year, OpenAI became a household name when it launched ChatGPT, a clever AI chatbot which amassed 100 million users in its first two months. But OpenAI's large language models are only one step towards the company's ambition of developing Artificial General Intelligence, or AGI, a system that can match the cognitive abilities of humans on nearly any task. Earlier this year, Microsoft invested a reported $10 billion into OpenAI, a testament to the increasingly widespread belief in the transformative potential of its models. But the technology also carries great risks, and Silicon Valley is split over how far and how fast to go with its development and commercialization. In an interview with ABC News in March, Sam acknowledged the need for caution. I think people should be happy that we're a little bit scared of this. I think people should be You're happy. a little bit scared. A little bit, yeah, You of personally. I think if I said I were not, you should either not trust me or be very unhappy I'm in this job. Last week, however, the world was stunned by the news that the board of OpenAI had fired Sam, the man who had become the face of the AI revolution. He was not consistently candid in his communications with the board, hindering its ability to exercise responsibility. The board no longer has confidence in his ability to continue leading OpenAI. His sacking left OpenAI in disarray, 
with nearly all the company's employees signing a letter threatening to leave if the board didn't resign. And Sam Altman is now going to be joining Microsoft to lead a new advanced AI research team. That's according to a post. Until a couple of days later, Sam Altman, the co-founder and ousted leader, and will now return to OpenAI as CEO. We know that these negotiations. This fast-moving corporate soap opera has captivated the world. But what does the chaos surrounding OpenAI mean for the wider industry and the vision of developing safe and responsible artificial intelligence? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. In Lexington, Kentucky, I'm Alice Fullwood. And in today's show, what just happened at OpenAI? And what does it mean for the future of artificial intelligence? First, we explore what it is about OpenAI's structure that allowed Sam Altman to be fired in the first place. This nonprofit board supposed to represent the interests of all of humanity, which matches the grandiose mission of OpenAI itself. Then, we discuss why this story of Silicon Valley intrigue has attracted so much attention. And I think most people in tech have spent the last year kind of walking around holding onto the top of the head with both hands, thinking, oh my god, this is amazing. Finally, we hear why many people are worried about the development of AI. They were quite worried about the risks, about these things going rogue or these things being used to build bioweapons or cyber weapons. Mike, Alice, hello. Hey, Tom. Hello. Alice, what takes you to Lexington, Kentucky, the horse capital of the world? Have you, <laughs> have you been there before? Hilarious. Hilarious, Mike. Yeah, I uh, I have been here before. This is where my uh, my in-laws live. And uh, obviously it's Thanksgiving this week in America. So once this episode wraps, I'll be off to bake some pies and help grind the turkey. But, you know, where better to report on stories like the downfall of CZ, the king of crypto, than Lexington, Kentucky? You know, it's a very natural place to be. It's a free early stat of the week for you. Uh, Kentucky, one of the four American states that calls itself a commonwealth. <laughs> Uh, which, as I understand it, confers no legal difference whatsoever. So the breakdown of our mail from our listeners is about 1% pictures of people's pets and 99% hate mail from <laughs> residents of Lexington. I don't, I don't know why they hate us. Well, apparently the first time we mentioned Lexington, I said something moderately disparaging about it being a small place. But, uh, you know, I love Lexington, Kentucky. I spend a lot of time here, as Mike is well aware of, so... <laughs> Still, I probably wouldn't have minded taking a detour to Seattle on my way here to see CZ enter his guilty plea. We aired my interview with him on Money Talks a few weeks ago. And, uh, you know, he was going on about how Binance was now sort of one of the most licensed exchanges in the world. And we were focusing on this question of whether Binance, which is you know still the world's biggest cryptocurrency exchange and a firm that grew super quickly, uh, in part because it didn't really bother, at least at first, doing things like collecting identification documents or policing transactions on its platform. You know, we would look at the question of whether or not it could become this sort of fully regulated compliant entity. And it looks like maybe the firm will, but it is going to have to do so without CZ, who has pled guilty to uh, money laundering, is paying a fine and uh, may end up serving some time in jail once he's sentenced in February. He's also stood down as the firm CEO. 
So I think a few weeks ago when we had an episode on CZ, we described him as crypto's last man standing. So so I guess that means that's it for crypto. Crypto's done. Yes, I guess it might be time to call call time on the industry then. But um, even that sort of massive story, which sort of had, you know, Janet Yellen and Merrick Garland both commenting and doing press conferences and has obviously sort of gripped the crypto industry, is still only the second most exciting business story of the week. I, like everyone else, have been totally gripped by the insane saga going on at OpenAI, and I'm thrilled to dive into it in this episode with you both. Yeah, I was trying to think of the last sort of corporate spat with this level of high drama playing out this publicly and this quickly. And honestly, I I was sort of reduced to failed military coup attempts rather than actual (laughs) corporate drama, which seems a little bit more fitting. Yeah, I haven't been this excited by a business story since Carlos Ghosn was smuggled out of Japan in a box. That was also a a great one. (laughs) Yes, it's certainly been a fast-moving story. And to help us digest exactly what's happened over the past few days, I want to bring in our colleague Arjun Romani because he is the expert in all things OpenAI. Arjun, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Tom. So I imagine it's been a nice, quiet few days for you following this story, Arjun. Yeah, well, I was planning to take the week easy for Thanksgiving, but instead we got sort of the wildest story of my career. It's kind of been like watching a movie and then constantly scribbling down notes on it. Yes, I'm sure it's been a wild ride for you. Uh, Well, to kick us off, could you just give us a sense of OpenAI and its place in the AI market? Why is this company such a big deal? So the way I like to think about it is they're the company that brought these general purpose AI models out of the research lab and into the real world. So in 2022, they launched ChatGPT, which is a large language model, which became the fastest app ever to 100 million users. And basically the way this works is it souped up the entire internet. And now you can ask it questions about really anything. And you might wonder, why is this such a big deal one year later? Well, I think there are a few things that are very special about OpenAI as a company. So, you know, their technology is really, you know, at the cutting edge. So in the past year, there have been a lot of what people call open source models that have been released. The way in which you use them are publicly available. And, you know, there's been this common argument that a lot of people who like open source make that, hey, these models are catching up. They're only six months behind OpenAI and Google and these big giants. But, you know, if you actually look at the measures of success, OpenAI's model, its best one has been around now for over a year. And it's still substantially better than all these other ones, which sort of suggests the company has some kind of secret sauce, if you will. And the second thing I should add is they're building a real business, right? They were started only in 2015, and they really only started making revenue last year. But now they're on track for making $1.3 billion over the next year. And they were actually about to close a fundraise just imminently before the events of this weekend that would have valued them at $86 billion. And its structure is kind of weird, right? It's both a huge company and also a nonprofit at the same time. So how does that work? So the history of the company is a, a bit strange. So it was founded in 2015 as a nonprofit by Sam Altman and Elon Musk and several others. It was really just a small research lab at the time. You know, people actually took pay cuts to work there. But then in 2019, Elon Musk stopped funding the nonprofit. He claimed 
it was in conflict with Tesla. The inside story is others say he wanted more control, but wasn't given it. But the problem was that to keep doing research on these big AI models, OpenAI needed more and more computing power, which costs lots of money. So that's why Sam Altman, the CEO, created a what they call a capped for-profit company inside of the nonprofit. And they entered a partnership with Microsoft. You know, they raised a billion dollars and that's turned it into what it is today. And in fact, they've actually loosened the cap on the for-profit entity where it now grows over time. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's becoming more and more like a private company. But the key point is that this nonprofit board still has full control over the for-profit entity. And it's that structure that has allowed Sam Altman to have been fired in the first instance by the company's board without its largest shareholder, Microsoft, actually being party to that decision and seemingly also to the anger of the vast majority of staff, right? That's exactly right. So this nonprofit board supposed to represent the interests of all of humanity, which matches the grandiose mission of OpenAI itself, but it consisted of six people before the restructuring. So three of them were co-founders, one was Sam, and the other three were independent board directors. And so November 17th, four of them, they actually kicked out the two other co-founders. So that would be Sam and, and Greg Brockman. Brockman quit after being stripped of his board role. And what happened was, you know, really quite unprecedented so Sam is very revered by his staff. He personally hired a lot of them, and he's seen as maybe the only irreplaceable person at OpenAI because you know he's so good at striking deals. He manages all these investor relationships. He really inspires a lot of people, sets the vision at the top. And so by November 20th, the vast majority of the staff, 770 or so people, had signed a letter basically giving the remaining board members an ultimatum resign and bring back Sam and Greg to the company, or the staff would follow Sam to Microsoft, where in a very interesting move, Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, had basically invited Sam and Greg to set up a new in-house AI lab. By the 21st, the board had agreed to a compromise, and it's not actually clear who won from this compromise. Both sides had to make concessions. We now have a three-person board. So one of them is Adam D'Angelo, the co-founder of Quora, and he was on the board beforehand, right? But then the two other board members are Brett Taylor, he was a co-CEO of Salesforce, and then you have Larry Summers, of all people, the economist and former Treasury Secretary, who has an interest in the economics of AI. I think overall, this new board is going to be slightly more favorable to Sam than the old one, and basically signifies, you know, OpenAI is continuing along its commercial maturation, if you will. And so what do you think all of this instability over the past week or so will mean longer term for the company? The place to start first is really what was the core issue at stake here? You know, why were there tensions at the board? So there's an idea called artificial general intelligence or AGI, which you really need to know if you want to understand OpenAI as a company. It's really their mission to develop this. And it's really an AI that's so powerful that it's as good as humans at a broad range of tasks. You can imagine this being very good for the world, but also potentially risky. It could be on the path to what people call superintelligence, which sounds as sci-fi-like as it is. And you know, a lot of people in these companies really believe that's a real thing, and we're very close to achieving something close to it. 
You can imagine if people had access to a very, very powerful intelligence on their computer, a common person could synthesize something like a biological weapon, which could make the world much more unstable. So it's very important to be able to make these models safe. And I think that tension over how to balance commercial interests versus the safe development over this technology is one factor among several that could have created some tension and disagreement within the board. And I think if you look at the final composition of who's now on the new board, the people who were associated with thinking about these risks the most are no longer on the board. And what do you think this will mean for OpenAI's position as the kind of market leader in the field? So I think it'll have mixed effects. Surprisingly, I think it could actually make OpenAI taken by itself a stronger company. So, you know, I spoke to some employees last night and the way they talked about this experience is as if they, you know, trauma bonded with their fellow employees, right? So a lot of them were thinking of going home for Thanksgiving. They stayed in San Francisco to see the saga out. They now have a bit more of a mandate to move quickly into the market. We'll see how that plays out. But In terms of their position in the market, I think they're going to be facing a lot more competition. A lot of companies today, they have only been working with one AI company, which, as we just saw, is a bit risky. So I think we're going to see a diversification away from just open AI. You know, they're really going to now want to have multiple providers that they go to and not be wholly dependent on one. So I think the last lesson is, you know, where is their power in corporate America? And so I think the board, they did not expect Sam to come back. But what happened, of course, is the employees and the investors, they use their leverage. I think that goes to show you the hard resources that matter in this industry of talent and money because you need computing power. They matter a lot. Arjun, I know you are a very busy man at the moment. So thank you for taking the time to walk us through all of that. It was fun. Thanks, Tom. Now, I want to explore how the tech world views the corporate intrigues at OpenAI. To do that, on Tuesday evening, just before it was announced that Sam Altman would return to OpenAI, I spoke to Benedict Evans. He used to be a partner at Andreessen Horowitz, the venture capital firm, and now writes a popular industry newsletter. Benedict, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks. Thank you. Since ChatGPT was launched last November, OpenAI has really been kind of the flag bearer of this latest wave of generative AI. How significant has the company been to the development of this technology? OpenAI made a big bet that large language models could produce really spectacular results. And we had this moment of shock. I think, frankly, they had a moment of shock the end of last year when ChatGPT 3.5 came out and it produced kind of much better results than most people would have expected. And I think most people in tech have spent the last year kind of walking around holding onto the top of the head with both hands thinking, oh my God, this is amazing. Kind of pause. What is it? Where does this go? What does this mean? And OpenAI is not the only developer out there. Where does it stand relative to its competition? So, I mean, they were the first out of the block to really go for this at scale. But the concept is pretty widely understood and straightforward. And so depending on how you count it, there's anything from half a dozen to several dozen different people in a spectrum of capabilities from quite close to much smaller and cheaper, but not as capable. I think at the moment, everyone would say that ChatGPT4 is still kind of meaningfully ahead of alternative models. 
I think there's one of the many questions is how long that will be and how many alternative models there might be. Do you think these types of non-profit structures that govern OpenAI, but also some of its competitors as well, can compete in a business where capital is so important? I think it's a huge challenge. And this is a very expensive, very capital intensive thing to work on. Um, Where does the money come from? Who is it that's going to give you that money? And why? Uh, Because if you want money from financial investors or corporate investors or industrial investors, whoever it is, they want something for that. They want something back. In particular, they don't want you to sit on your hands and say, we've decided we don't like this, so we're going to stop building it. Now, if this was some billionaire who had given it billions of dollars, then fine. But otherwise, there's a sort of very basic conflict there, which I think is part of the background to what Sam Altman had been building. I mean, the funny thing is, there's sort of a deeper conflict here, which is OpenAI project is to build AGI while making sure no one builds AGI. I mean... That's slightly unfair as a way to describe it, but not very. And so an awful lot of people inside tech and outside of tech have spent the last year kind of looking at Sam Altman and saying, well, you're basically telling us that that you're terrified of AGI and everyone needs to be really scared and the government needs to control it. And meanwhile, you're also telling us that you're going to try and build it as fast as possible. Pick one. Well, on that note, Benedict Evans, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks. Thank you. So, Mike, Alice, I think this story is fascinating on two levels, really. One is the drama of OpenAI itself. And I think the events of the past week have really laid bare that while OpenAI has become incredibly important incredibly quickly by leading the charge around generative AI, it's still a very young company with fewer than a 1,000 staff. And frankly, it, it seems to lack any real maturity around its governance. You know, I suspect a bit more gray hair on its board and and its leadership team would really have uh, helped avoid all of this unnecessary drama. But on a deeper level, it's also been fascinating to see this divide over AI safety that's been kind of simmering in recent months, really boil over in quite a spectacular fashion within the AI industry's most important company. And I think the debates around this, and in particular around how the technology should be governed, are really only just getting started. Yeah, I really liked Benedict's point there about who's going to pay for it. Otherwise, if, you know, these companies aren't run as traditional profit-making corporate institutions who actually stumps up the cash for this rather expensive industry um, is an interesting question. And it, it makes me feel like the discussions about how to govern it are just getting started but actually it's too late for them to just get started, right? Because the technology is already here. (laughs) This has already started. Um, This is the equivalent of sort of Stevenson's rocket steaming past you and you talking about, you know, how we govern the existence of railways or whatever. Like it's, it's already happened. And yeah, I do feel like the conversation about the governance and stuff, interestingly, seems to be lagging quite a long way behind this very fast moving technology. And yeah, it seems like it's sort of, governing itself at this point. Yeah, I also liked his last point on the contradictions that seemed inherent in OpenAI. You know, what Ilya, who is the chief scientist at OpenAI and was one of the people behind the sort of orchestration of the coup, at least at first, have said publicly is that they think, you know, 
artificial general intelligence will do all kinds of wonderful things like solve disease and usher in an age of super abundance where, uh, you know, human beings don't have to work and all these other apparently wonderful sounding things. So I do understand why, you know, he's trying to build it. But at the same time, he keeps talking about how terrified he is that, you know, it will think of humans like we think of animals and it will just do whatever it wants. And so he has to sort of make sure that the AI really loves humanity um, is sort of one way that he keeps putting it. AGI just seems like one of those super high risk, high reward propositions. And that really can't help but remind me of some of the elements of the FTX story. Obviously not the fraud elements, to be clear, but you also had but but in that story, you also had this sort of Silicon Valley type with the view that he would risk all of humanity for the chance to make the world a much better place. And, you know, several of the board members who moved to oust Sam Altman are effective altruists like Sam Bankman-Fried was. And those board members have the mission of making sure that AGI is beneficial for humanity and won't destroy it. And after they ousted Sam, they did say that destroying OpenAI might be consistent with that mission. So, you know, if you think it's a sort of high risk, high reward proposition, everything that's happened should make you sort of, I think, a little bit more worried about some of the risks. Well, after the break, we'll hear more about how to address some of those concerns. Before that, we've made this episode of Money Talks available to listen to for free. But if you want to listen every week, you will need to be an Economist subscriber. And good news, we are running a Black Friday sale. From now until Monday, the 27th of November, you can sign up to Economist Podcasts Plus for half price. For just $2 or pounds or euros a month, you will get access to all our award-winning podcasts. For full details, search online for Economist Podcasts Plus. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So, we've heard what happened at OpenAI and how the tech community views it. But the reason that this story of Silicon Valley intrigue has made such big news around the world is because there are very real fears about how, or even if, artificial intelligence can be deployed safely. And the person who knows more about this topic than anyone else I know is the economist Ludwig Siegler. So I spoke to him about how the shenanigans at OpenAI will shape the debate over safety. Ludwig, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? So this is a fast-moving story, but I understand that differing views on speed versus safety in the development of AI was a big factor in the initial ousting of Sam Altman. And there's been a lot of debate around this topic recently, including the, the recent summit in the UK on the topic. Could you start by just bringing us up to speed on that debate? Yes, so artificial intelligence, or what's called artificial intelligence today, large language models, chat GPT and all of that. So people are very impressed by this technology. They see a lot of potential. Some people say it's going to change everything. And I think it's a very interesting technology. 
it will be used in many places. But at the same time, it comes with certain risks, long-term and short-term risks. Long-term risks, uh, people are afraid that these machines may go rogue. They may do what what they want, turn everything into paper clips. Uh, Short-term risks is disinformation, is bias and all that. And so opportunities and risks and that debate has been going on for some time and is intensifying. And I think that debate is also at the core of what's happening or what has happened at OpenAI. And it seems like within the tech world, there's this split that's emerging between people that think that, you know, we should slow down the development of this technology or curtail it. And those that think we should go full steam ahead just because of that potential. Yes. And the people, I mean, who have been working on that technology, I mean, originally they were all of them, to their credit, quite worried about the risks, especially the long-term risks uh, about these things going rogue or these things being used to build bioweapons or cyber weapons and all that. And that is the reason why OpenAI had this unusual board, which is not composed of representatives of investors, but of people who are supposed to save, quote-unquote, humanity and make sure that artificial intelligence is deployed to the benefit of humanity. So these were more like AI experts at the top. And the idea was that they would oversee and make sure that open AI doesn't release stuff that is dangerous or go ahead faster than it should kind of. But that has changed as the opportunity or the the size of the potential market for artificial intelligence has become apparent. Of course, people who want to go ahead want to release things as fast as possible, compete with other companies, uh, make sure that the company is successful, have become stronger. And that was the conflict between the kind of the doomers, the people who are really worried about the technology on the one hand, and the people who want to basically benefit from the opportunities and release stuff as fast as possible on the other. And so that's led to a clash and that's led to the ouster of Sam Altman and now the reinstatement. And to what extent do you think these risks, both the kind of near-term worries around misinformation and bias and the like, and those longer-term sort of existential risks can be mitigated away by some kind of technical solution in how these models are built or operated. I mean, technical solutions are one thing, but we actually don't know a lot about these machines. In a way, not well-researched. Of course, we've built them and they do their thing, but in a way, they're black boxes. So what has to be developed is kind of metrics research to understand what the risks are so we can test them, assess the risks before we release these services. I mean, right now, it's kind of up to the companies. They do research, but probably not enough. And that has to change. At the same time, you probably also need regulation of some kind to make sure that the companies do the right thing. And the case of OpenAI has shown you cannot leave it to the companies to completely regulate themselves. And what are some of the different regulatory solutions that people are calling for? One thing which seems to be clear is that governments will create these AI safety institutes. The UK has done that. The US will do that. And they will be tasked with looking at these models and getting information from the companies, from the model makers, to be able to see whether these models are risky. They will also probably dictate to the companies what they, the companies, should do in terms of risk assessment, how transparent they have to be, and all of that. So you kind of have a safety cop. Big countries will have safety cops, and they will work together, exchange information. 
And that's probably the right thing to do. Beyond that, I mean, there's lots of discussion about creating some global institution, kind of like an IPCC, like in climate change. The IPCC is the organization that collects the information about climate change and makes predictions and all that, sets standards. And uh, so an IPCC for AI that's in the making, and that body would create consensus over standards and collect information and see what's happening and then helps governments to decide what to do. And then there's, of course, one big discussion, which is about open source. So most of these large language models, they are proprietary. That means they're offered by and controlled by a company. You can't look into them, how they work. And as opposed to that, there's an increasing number of open source models. But people say, yeah, if you make these models open, then bad guys can take them, make them more powerful and create misinformation campaigns or build cyber weapons or bioweapons. And so there's a movement towards controlling these open source models, even outlawing them in some quarters. And that's a big debate because if you do that, you may hamper innovation. It may strengthen a few big model makers uh, rather than creating competition. And that would be a problem as well. What do you think the instability at OpenAI over the past week will do for this debate over safety and, and how will it impact the outlook of regulators? So OpenAI and its governance structure, kind of to have this board of trustees or board that oversees the company, was an attempt at self-regulation. And that apparently did not work. And you can discuss that at length why it didn't work, but it is clear that it was wanting. And I think it's going to push people, push the debate more towards government regulation because it makes clear that that's kind of a genuine task here for the government to do to regulate that technology. Then, of course, the discussion is how do you do that? How do you do that without kind of limiting or stymieing innovation and make sure that the risks are kind of contained? And that's a long debate. But I mean, generally, I think all the chaos at OpenAI has pushed us towards, let's say, a world where governments will regulate AI. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Ludwig. Thanks, Tom. So, Alice, Mike, what do you make of what you've heard today? You know, with Sam Altman back now at OpenAI, at least for the meantime, um, it would be easy to think that this whole story is just this insane fuss over nothing. He was fired and reinstated in less than a week. But I do think that there are quite a lot of very important things that this whole saga indicates or signals. You know, as I mentioned earlier, that the board... The sort of official reason for ousting him was that they said that there'd been sort of a breakdown in communication, that they didn't think that he was giving them enough information or or being clear enough about what OpenAI was up to. And they did think that destroying the company was consistent with their role as protectors of humanity in this case. And, you know, when Sam and all of his co-founders set up OpenAI to begin with, they seemed to take very seriously this idea that you had to have this kind of structure, this weird non-profit board that had total control and had this interest in making sure that the technology was developed safely. They all took it very seriously that that was an extremely important part of trying to do this. And ultimately, I think what we've seen is that that mechanism potentially didn't really work. Now, whether or not you think that their concerns were sort of grounded in reality or or were legitimate this time around, what ultimately happened was because of various for-profit interests, Sam Altman and seemingly sort of most of the staff of OpenAI might have ended up at Microsoft, which has seemed to be the plan for the first half of the week. And now he's been reinstated with a new board, which includes Larry Summers, I guess, as the sort of resident important person that people call in in these situations. (laughs) (laughs) And 
And so if you think that this nonprofit firing of the CEO mechanism is one of the safeguards preventing artificial intelligence or artificial general intelligence from destroying humanity, then I don't think that you should have any faith in it after this week, given what has happened. And that raises the sort of bigger question of, okay, so what can you do to make sure that we can develop this in a safe way? And I think it sort of basically points to the idea that, yes, it's fine for these sort of novel companies to play with these novel structures, and that might work for a time. But it's too big. It's too important now. There's too much money at stake. And so the only entity that really can um, get a grip and take control of the industry probably is the government. And therefore, you know, whatever mechanisms are trying to be put in place to regulate this industry, I think they feel a lot more urgent now after what's happened over the past week or so. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing Larry Summers take up his um, his role from the, the film Social Network, the early Facebook years film. Um, I'm looking forward to his reprisal of that in a film about open AI that is almost <laughs> certainly eventually coming. When I think about the sort of people really worried about artificial intelligence alignment and especially artificial general intelligence, I don't think I've ever said this before in my life, but these people actually need better public relations work um, uh, done for them. (laughs) I think we've ended up in a weird position where their public reputation has been seriously soured by a series of, frankly, gaffes. And I think there probably is a little bit of an absence of strategic thinking on the part of that movement that needs to be resolved because if it's going to be a sort of public battle over how this industry is regulated and how it's thought of, then they're going to need to be able to communicate properly. And I think that there's clearly a bit of a struggle with that at the moment. The other element that I keep thinking about when we have these conversations about AGI and how it's governed is about the rest of the world. And I think in particular about China and the example of this being like weapons of mass destruction, right? And it it really is the case that you only need one poorly aligned bit of artificial intelligence to be created and then it's out there and it's sort of done and it doesn't matter what everyone else's guardrails were. So uh, I think this is all a sort of immense, immense challenge. And at the moment, as I said before, I think the technology seems to be moving actually a lot faster than the sort of conversation is and the governance is. And it probably is a little bit unsettling that that's happening and it seems to be sort of running away with itself. For me, it'll be fascinating to see what this does to the competitive landscape around AI. You know, I find it hard to believe that we'll not see some kind of dispersion of talent and capital away from OpenAI after the episode as the industry looks to avoid putting all of its eggs in, in one basket and as customers look to hedge their bets by working with multiple model providers. I think that will throw into question this sort of $90 billion valuation that has been mooted for the company, which for a business making $1 billion in revenue, uh, that's been losing money and is demanding a whole lot of capital investment, always seemed a little bit rich unless you believed it could somehow dominate the industry that it was at the forefront of. And I think in reality, we're going to see a much flatter playing field coming out of this saga than, than what was perhaps initially expected. I think one person that's probably absolutely delighted by all of this, though, is uh, Sundar Pichai over at Alphabet. So they were they were really caught on the back foot 
by the launch of ChatGPT and, and have been basically scrambling to catch up ever since. So all this disruption is surely going to be great news for them, especially given their new high-powered Gemini AI model that's meant to be in the works at the moment. I do like how we can always rely on Tom to take the consultant's view of things. You know, we're, <laughs> I'm over here worrying that we're uh, headed for, for Terminator, a film that I did admit in our Money Talks group chat that I haven't seen, but apparently involves uh, artificial intelligence sort of destroying all of humanity. And he's like, look, this is really good for his competitors. The competitive landscape's been shaken up, which probably is a much more realistic and grounded concern or point to make than mine. I would just like to highlight the bombshell news there that Alice <laughs> has never seen Terminator. Which just seems absolutely unbelievable. I did mean to do my Explain homework yourself. and watch it before. <laughs> I, I did mean to do my homework and watch it before this episode. And then CZ was indicted on many crimes. Mm. I had to do my job okay. instead. Right. But, uh, but I will over this Thanksgiving period, I guess I'll, I'll sit down and knuckle down and watch it. So sorry, just to be clear, Alice, for our editors listening, your plan was to watch a film during your work hours. <laughs> if there wasn't a breaking news story, that was, that was the aim. Well, with that, I think it's time for us to pivot to our stats of the week. Who wants to kick us off? My stat of the week is $246 million. And it is the international and domestic box office returns to the Taylor Swift Eras Tour film so far as of, I think, November the 20th, which really is a lot of money given that it's a recording of a concert that was going to take place anyway. It's very impressive. I will say I've seen it. But yeah, sort of crazy global phenomenon going on at the moment with Taylor Swift. Now this sense it's making me sound like the oldest person that's ever been alive. Um, but yeah, I thought that was there was a lot of money. Clearly you weren't throwing hands in the queue to get tickets for her, her Singapore stint. Otherwise, I think you'd understand why uh, so many people have flocked to see the movie you know tickets are a scarce resource i'll tell you that i did try and get tickets to see her in singapore but because it's one of the relatively few asia tour locations i believe there were 20 something million people in the queue for those tickets <laughs> and i did not manage to to achieve it 20 million a multiple of the population of singapore yeah yeah singapore would fall into the sea if all of those people turned up to see taylor swift <laughs> My stat of the week this week, I've pulled from a document put together by the census called Thanksgiving Day Fun Facts, which seems specifically <laughs> designed for this show. And it is four towns, which is the number of towns in America that are named after Turkey. So there's, there are two Turkey Creeks, a Turkey Creek in Louisiana and one in Arizona. And then there are two towns just called Turkey, Turkey, Texas and Turkey, North Carolina. And in total, about 1,500 people live across these four small towns. And they'll have a particularly festive time on Thursday. Do we think they're named all after the animal? Or do you think there was like a John Turkey explorer? <laughs> on the Mayflower. Let's look him up. <laughs> <laughs> well, my stat of the week is 95%, which is the estimated global number of travellers this year relative to pre-pandemic levels, according to the UN World Tourism Organization, and that is up from 63% last year. And many of our listeners may have heard of the revenge tourism boom, even partaken in the revenge tourism boom. But actually, business travel has also been recovering faster than initially had been expected. And that's all very nice for the industry that demand is recovering. But the problem actually is that 
it's struggling to ramp back up supply with sufficient speed to match it. And reversing all of the the mass layoffs that happened during the pandemic has taken a lot of time. The aircraft manufacturers are having big supply chain issues at the moment that's preventing some carriers from adding new capacity as well. And and the upshot of all of that has been higher prices, less availability and, and more delays. So horrible experiences all around for travellers. Maybe next year we'll see an easing of that if economic headwinds lead people to start cutting back on their travel, although there hasn't really been much sign of that yet. But if it does happen, I suppose that will be bad news for the travel industry, but maybe good news for all of us that don't really enjoy getting stuck waiting for planes at the airport. I always found revenge travel to be a very funny sounding phrase. You know, it conjures up you angrily sitting down in in your seat, flying (laughs) off to Italy, grimacing and sneering as you sip on your espresso. Um, It sounds so incredibly negative, but I I do appreciate the sentiment. I think I've been doing some some revenge traveling myself. I've been doing some revenge watching of Terminator during the workday, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. Today, I guess. Jeez, not very consistent with your story. (laughs) I know, I I can't keep anything straight. Have you been shirking or not, Alice? (laughs) Well, with that, I want to thank Benedict Evans. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. You can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Weidong Lin. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Alice Fullwood. And this is The Economist.